If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Listeners, we are bringing Rob Acton back on the podcast today to have a conversation about recruiting and onboarding great board members. Before I introduce Rob, let me just remind you that 2021 has been the year that we have really run away with webinars. So we've got a lot of webinars scheduled for this year. Make sure you go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com to check out um, webinars on things like chief executive onboarding, strategic planning, board recruitment, etc. And now let me introduce to you again, Rob Acton. If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, we had him on about 140-something episodes ago, episode number 60. And in that conversation, we had a great chat about a number of different topics. We talked about how to have board meetings that don't make your board members want to go to sleep or drink. We talked about how to present effective executive director reports to your board. And so we're not going to cover most of that because, you know, the audio quality was pretty good back on episode 60. It's still available on your streaming app or from our website. So we're probably not going to spend a lot of time on that because Rob has so much more that he can share with you. Now, I first met Rob at the Board Source Biennial Conference back in 2017. It's actually where we recorded the last episode. Rob is a two-time executive director. And I don't mean he was two-timing as an executive director. I mean, he was an executive director twice. Once in New York, once in Chicago. For almost a dozen years, he was well known and also highly respected as an executive director. He ran two pretty high-profile institutions, I would even call them, in in New York and Chicago. One is the Taproot Foundation, and then the other is Cabrini Green Legal Services. So he transitioned from that to start Cause Strategy Partners, because he saw that in the nonprofit sector, there was a real niche that needed to be filled. Organizations needed 
to find good board members, and then they needed to train those board members and support them. And that's what Rob does today through Cross Strategy Partners, and they have three primary services. They have Board Learn, it's what it sounds like, Board Education, Board Lead, which does a lot of board recruitment pro- uh, projects, and then also concierge board placement. And that's why we want to talk to him about recruiting and onboarding great board members. Hey, Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dolph. It's good to be back with you after all these years. You know, the, the last time, I don't know if you recall, I actually think the conference forgot that I was supposed to be coming on to on site to record. And so I got there the first day and they're like, oh yeah, we forgot about you. Sorry, board source. I shouldn't quite say it that way. It seemed to be a surprise. And so they found that ballroom on like the top floor of the hotel. There were two of us, (laughs) right? In like 2000 square feet. And now, now we're pandemic times. So you're in a little tiny glass booth in a WeWork and and I'm in a closet that I've outfitted to be a recording studio. So how the times have changed in four years. And I apologize for, you know, I'm right near the elevator, so we might have some traffic back and forth, but it's a busy office. Well, and, you know, I do know that what you're going to be sharing with our listeners is gold. And so it's well worth us having to little, hear a little bit of traffic in the background. So talk to me about board lead so that our listeners understand what that is. Sure. Um, So board lead is our signature program. It was actually the first thing we built at Cause Strategy Partners six years ago. And it's a corporate partnership-based board placement training and support program. Um, We work only with candidates who come from one of our corporate partners. We're working with about 30 Fortune 500 companies, global professional services firms. And um, our core beneficiary, obviously, our nonprofit organizations, they pay nothing for the service. We invite them into a cohort after a pretty thorough application and consulting process, and then go through a six-stage process of training candidates on what the what board service is, matching them to an organization at the center of their personal passions, sort of working with them through the vetting, nomination, and election process coming back in on the back end and doing governance training, as well as a pretty robust evaluation process after both a year and two years of serving on a board. And today we've placed um, almost a thousand professionals on 500 boards in 20 cities around the country. Together, those candidates are driving more than $6 million in giving and fundraising into their organizations. And that's, you know, in addition to obviously delivering their core skill sets and insights, wisdom, knowledge in their board seat. So we're so proud of our our 1,000 board leaders, and it's been a real honor to serve the 500 nonprofits we've worked with over the years. I just have to reflect, that's impressive, over 1,000 board recruits. You've probably recruited more board members than anyone else in the country at this point. I don't know that to be certain, but I, I think that's likely. Yeah, I think that's likely. The program has just really taken on a life of its own it's, it's sort of a win-win-win. It's meeting our corporate partners' needs to get their people engaged in the community in these leadership activities, developing as leaders, developing their skill set, meeting our nonprofits' needs. As we know, so many nonprofits really struggle to find talented professionals who are raising their hands, standing ready, willing, and able to serve. And of course, then it's meeting our board candidates' need who, who want to find purpose. They, they want to find additional meaning in their lives that they can do through serving a nonprofit at the center of their core passions. And so 
Um, the scale has been much faster than I ever imagined. In fact, we're going to be launching the program in London, in United, the United Kingdom, in about a month. And, uh, and then we're looking at other global cities as well. So it's, it's been an incredible six years and so fulfilling to help people find their purpose through nonprofit board service and help our nonprofit partners find these immen immensely talented professionals to serve with them. So I've heard you say the word purpose and passion at least five times. <laughs> so one of my big questions, most of the professionals that are walking into your training to learn how to be a great board member, do they walk in already knowing what their passion is? No, I would say no. And they also don't really understand fully what they're signing up for. And so before they sign up, we actually meet with them. We do an, about an hour long training that really just dives into the core role and responsibilities of board service and puts a heavy emphasis on the commitment. I always say in that first session, I'm, I'm doing less cheerleading for board service and, and frankly more um, expectation setting and, and maybe even scaring those away who aren't coming to it with the right motives. Um, there's a lot of good that you get out of board service, but it's also a real job. It's a real responsibility, real commitment of your time, giving, fundraising, showing up, delivering your skills and the like. And so we align them around those expectations and then helping them find their personal passion really plays out as a part of the process. We usually are working with 50 to 60 uh, nonprofit organizations in each round that we run in a particular market. And so candidates are selecting from those organizations which ones are most resonating with them. So it's not even generally, you know, what are you interested in kids? It's I'm interested in that particular organization doing that set of programs and services with that leader in place. So there's a real precision to helping our candidates find their personal passions, um, which I think is, is pretty core to their, their success as board leaders later on. You touched on something I want to hit rewind and touch on it before we continue with passions. I love that you said a lot of what you're doing is almost trying to scare maybe prospective board members away. Often in, when I'm working with a board and we're talking about setting expectations, at least one board member will say, but aren't we, aren't we going to scare away prospective board members? And my response is always, gosh, I hope so. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's right. We developed what we call the board leader way, which is basically our definition of full board engagement. And we ask our candidates to actually sign on the dotted line and to commit to that form of engagement. You know, this is too much work. It would be wildly unfulfilling for our team to place candidates on boards who turn out to be duds. There's enough duds in the nonprofit boardroom around the country, people who are there to get their name on the website or their bio and their picture on the website, but then don't show up and do anything. And, and that's just, that's an egregious violation of what it is to commit to serve in this role. It's a vital role. You shepherd, you lead, you guide an organization doing vital work in the community. So we're really committed to weeding out any duds and really identifying those folks who have it in their gut and who have the wherewithal to step up and take on this leadership role for the number of years that they serve. So when you're talking about, quote, full board engagement, what does that look like? Well, I'd love for folks to go to boardlead.com and they can look at the board leader way. But, you know, it's pretty straightforward and nothing in here is, is wildly surprising for a nonprofit leader listening to this session. But for a new professional looking at board service, some of these are surprising, right? It's 
showing up at meetings, committing to attend all or almost all meetings, serving on at least one committee, giving a personally and even sacrificial gift each year, participating in all fundraising efforts, leveraging your core skill set uh, to drive value in that functional area you know best, committing to use your power in the boardroom to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion, that we have those kinds of organizations um, being led by board members who understand that, committing to finish each election, each elected term. We don't ask you to you know, commit to three terms, but we do ask you to commit to complete each term that, that you are elected to it, that you sign up for. I love that you say most of us who work in the nonprofit sector are already aware of these, and I agree with you. The issue, though, is the vast majority of boards, you don't see the members actually fulfilling that commitment for full engagement. Yep, that's exactly right. We, um, you know, it can be really dispiriting. I once attended a conference and the first remarks of the executive director who was speaking were these words, boards suck. And the whole room kind of giggled. And I thought, how sad that there's such resonance with this idea from somebody doing a keynote address that boards suck. We exist. Um, I hope it's okay to use that word, by the way, on the podcast. Oh, go right ahead. Instructions are <laughs> but that we the the mission statement of board lead is to elevate and transform what governance looks like in the nonprofit sector, and that we hope because we are a leader in this space that over time are now 1,000 and one day 10,000 board leaders who are serving in these roles have, have, have changed the nature of what that commitment is and have elevated the performance of their fellow board members um, because it really, it really is a pace setting activity to serve on a board to do it the right way. Other board members notice and it puts a sort of informal pressure on everyone to elevate their game as well. We've seen it time and time again. It's interesting this concept of, you know, board suck, because board governance is baked into the nonprofit sector. So part of me is kind of like, oh my gosh, that's almost sad, like to be a chief executive and feel like board suck, because you're literally working in a system where that's part of the DNA. Yeah. Yeah. And what's even more frustrating to me is, you know, corporate boards don't suck. Why? Not because folks are more talented per se, it's there's this sort of intrinsic motivation built in, right? You have equity in the company and you're getting paid oftentimes a really handsome sum to serve on that board. It shouldn't be any different in the nonprofit sector. You're still lending your personal and your professional identity to take on this leadership role. And so the, the motivation is, is different. It's intrinsic. It's you're passionate about the organization. You understand the importance of that organization in the community and you step up to, to do the job. And so I really think that our board, and by the way, we do this evaluation work and, and understand that the impact our board leaders are driving. And it's pretty exceptional um, that they really are taking on this role, eyes wide open, fully committed in both quantitatively and qualitatively, we're hearing about the impact that they're driving. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of our board leaders. And again, over time, we hope the net effect is sort of a redefinition of what governance is in our sector so that it's just not acceptable to be that board leader or board member, sorry, who who signs up but doesn't show up. And so you mentioned that you're also doing an evaluation one year in and two years in for people that you place. What does that evaluation look like? 
Yeah, great question. We follow up with both the nonprofit leader of the organization where our board member has been placed and with the board member themselves. So on the nonprofit side, we're trying to just understand all the value that that, that individual's driven, um, their time, their capacity, how they perform vis-a-vis -vis other board members, what their giving looked like, what their fundraising outcomes look like, what leadership roles they've taken on. One of the things I think I'm most proud about is after one year of service, 42% uh, of our board leaders have been elected to a leadership role. Just pretty extraordinary. It shows that they're they're showing up and doing the job that within a year they've they've been named an officer or are chairing a committee. On the candidate side, we're looking for, of course, you know, sort of the fulfillment of the experience, but we're also looking at some really tangible things like skill development or leadership development, and also what it's meant for to them that their company has provided this purpose-filled sort of on-ramp to board service. Uh, so we're we're looking at a lot of those those things as well. You know, I'll say the skill development angle is really important. Dolph, I think you know I'm a I'm a lawyer. When I first started serving on a board, you know, I I had some skills to offer. I knew a little bit about the legal duties of serving on a board, but I couldn't make up my way around a balance sheet or a PL if you held a gun to my head. I just didn't know anything about the financial oversight role. Now, you know, I'm running a firm. I'm in finances all the time, and those skills were literally developed out of my board experience. So it, it, board service provides a real opportunity, not just for you to leverage your skills, but you for you to gather some new skills as well. It's interesting you relate that to your early experience as a lawyer, because I know a number of major firms, kind of, and, you know, most of, most of my work's been up and down the eastern seaboard, but a number of firms up and down the eastern seaboard where there's sort of the expectation that if you're a second, third, fourth year associate and you're serious about partner, they kind of expect you're going to get on a board and you're going to become an officer of some sort so that you learn those leadership skills. Absolutely. We, um, that's not limited to law firms. We, ex we experience that with our accounting firm partners as well as sort of our corporate partners. That's a huge reason why our corporate partners are bringing us on, that, that they have a deep commitment to invest in the development of their leaders. Um, and I'm not talking about their associates. I'm talking about already folks who are in leadership roles, but they want them to develop further as leaders and recognizing that this really provides the opportunity to do so. And the other thing we're really excited about is sort of a renewed commitment to invest in their diverse leaders in the company. So some of our partners are now bringing us on to you know work with they're women who are in leadership roles or black professionals, Latinx professionals, indigenous professionals, um, those with a, with a disability, LGBTQ. So they're really being very intentional about the leadership opportunities that flow through board service and making that a priority within their, their professionals. That's really awesome because that's obviously them part of their DEI strategy, but probably that also helps boards that are looking to develop more of a DEI strategy as well. Enormous. I think in our space in governance, I, I can't think of any more pressing problem that our nonprofit partners present to us with than the lack of diversity on their boards. And they recognize that they need to be led by board members who reflect the community that these organizations serve. And far too often, that's just not the case. Now, I will say, again, another proud point of board lead, 46% of the professionals that we've placed on boards identify as professionals of color. 
the average is 16% nationally. So we're 3x the national average in terms of the board candidates that we're placing on boards, but we want to do more and we're leaning into that. We actually have a special initiative underway we're calling Board Advance um, that, will, that will sort of elevate uh, even further um, our ability to sort of address that opportunity gap that exists for professionals of color and ex address that that boardroom gap that exists in the nonprofits that we're partnering with. That's pretty impressive that your DEI inclusion strategy is three times as successful. What do you credit that to? A lot of intentionality. When we're having conversations with our corporate partners, we're exploring what the opportunities look like to extend this opportunity to their professionals of color, for example. Um, it's also, you know, frankly, I think a, a reflection of the intentionality of a board placement program. The reality is too often in the nonprofit boardroom, in fact, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in the nonprofit boardroom as a consultant or a board member where the chair of the nominating committee, you know, says, hey, we, we've got elections coming up in three months. Does anybody know anybody who might want to serve on our board? And that's about as strategic as it gets. That's also that clubby approach to board services, exactly why these problems exist, right? But when you break down that wall and you put tentacles out in the community to say, we want to expand our reach and look for folks who we're not presently networked to, who are interested in serving on our board, that changes the nature of, of, of sort of the, the candidate um, pipeline. And so I think there's just a lot of intentionality that we're putting behind it. And I want to add that that we don't stop it at the diversity question. That's just one third of the equation. We're really looking at inclusion and equity as well. And we're doing a huge amount of training of our nonprofit partners around what it is to have inclusive practices on the board and what it is to leverage your board to create equitable opportunities within the board, but also an equitable organization serving the community well. And so there's a lot of a lot of emphasis on this at, at, at cause strategy partners and board lead right now, recognizing that it's, you know, among the most important challenges that we're trying to solve. I definitely want us to talk about some inclusive practices for boards, but before we do, let's go back because I've got to reflect on that board chair who says, hey, who do you know? You and I, before we pressed record, we talked, and you and I are about the same age. I won't give away your age, but listeners, you know about how old I am, and you and I are about the same age. And I've always thought of that as the friends and family program. And I don't know if you remember back in the 80s and 90s, back when you used to have to pay for long distance, like, you know, and by the way, listeners, if you're not of a certain age, you don't know that it used to be to call from one city to another to call from Philadelphia to New York was a long distance phone call. And your grandmother would only talk to you for two minutes because she was paying long distance charges, right? Right, exactly. And it wasn't, you know, it was not cheap, even by today's standards, but much less back then, 75 cents a minute or a dollar a minute or something like that. But if you recall, there was one phone company that said, oh, we have a friends and family plan. And if you register up to five people and they, you know, as it being in your friends and family, we're only going to charge you a quarter a minute or whatever. But what I've always reflected on is, you know, the friends and family plan couldn't keep a phone company running because they ended up not working out with that plan. And the friends and family recruitment plan also to really not keep a board running. You know, it's like right. if, if you're just like, oh, who do we know? Well, at some point, this house that you've built around only people you know collapses. Absolutely. It's a great example, Dolph. But let's talk for just a bit about 
maybe some inclusive procedures that boards can have? Well, I think the essence of, you know, inclusion is making sure that this is not sort of tokenism, you know, but it's it's a real opportunity for folks to bring their full selves, bring their authentic selves and allow them the space and the leadership opportunities to deliver um, all that they bring to the table. And so it's sort of looking at what is your pipeline to leadership roles on the board? You know, do we do we just think about sort of the same longstanding board members who will always end up in chair roles or officer roles? Or are we in year one grooming our new board leaders who maybe are, are, are bringing some of the diversity that we lacked prior? Are we grooming them for those leadership roles? Um, you know, many boards have sort of mentor mentor programs, but if you really want to prepare a board member for a leadership role, they should be being mentored by the chair or the vice chair or the treasurer, the, the relevant person who's, who's in a year or two, they're going to be able to take on that position. And then I think much of it also just falls to the board chair in the way they navigate and lead both the board and a board meeting itself, right? How are you thinking about leveraging your board members and how are you inviting them into the conversation? Um, I love when I see board chairs go out of their way to invite the feedback or the, invite the comments, invite the, the, the engagement at board meeting of some of the folks who maybe aren't speaking as often because maybe traditionally the, there are certain board members who've just kind of dominated the conversation. When a board chair really owns that role, it, it creates a much more inclusive atmosphere. And then we're, you know, we're working with our candidates to sort of do a bit of training on this space as well. But one of my best pieces of advice for a new board member is just ask great questions. Oftentimes, some of your most powerful board members demonstrate a certain um, curiosity and a, a desire to learn. And great questions can actually set you apart as a leader more than great answers. Uh, because you know we're kind of used to the board member who knows everything and who just is always talking. But when board leaders are demonstrating that curiosity and that intrigue and that desire to dig deeper and understand so that they can be great governors, I think that's a really strong way to, to, to demonstrate leadership. I have to share that you just made me feel so good because I'm leading a board retreat this weekend and for the breakout sessions, every breakout group just has questions. So it's not like, oh, you know, you should talk about A, B, C, D, E. It's like, okay, here are the five questions you just need to explore. Absolutely. Yeah. And there, there's there's huge power in that, especially for a new board member who's kind of starting down their, their governance journey. Mm -hmm. Now, I've got to make sure, Rob, that we save time for the off-the-map question. And, you know, this is an opportunity for our listeners to get to know you just a little bit better. Get to know the person behind the public figure that is Rob Acton. So you're New York-based, and like a number of people that are New York-based, you really enjoy Broadway. Guilty as charged. So you know what question I'm about to ask you. If you were to think of the lifetime of Broadway shows you have seen, which one is your favorite? Love this question. And I live on 55th and Broadway now, which is about five blocks from the Broadway theaters. Um, so pre-COVID, I had the opportunity to go quite regularly. Um, and, you know, I can't, I, I, you know, now we're, we're hopefully seeing a world where Broadway is going to be fully back by the fall. Um, you know, I, I'm going to say a, a typical answer, and then I'm going to give you one that's a little out of the box. 
Typical answer, there's just no other way for me to see it. Hamilton is the greatest Broadway show that's ever been written. Lin-Manuel is a genius. The Everything about that show, you know, is is perfect for me. So, I, you know, typical Hamilton's got to be number one. But my out of the box, maybe I'll call it number two or three, that not a lot of people saw, unfortunately, is Ragtime. Um, Ragtime was this huge production. In fact, it failed quickly because it cost so much. They just couldn't keep the doors open. But it's it's sort of the story of three different communities of New York in the turn of the century, sort of navigating one another in the way that they they connect. The music is spectacular. Brian Stokes Mitchell, Audra McDonald starred in the show, among other incredible performers. Um, so if anyone ever gets a chance to see Ragtime, don't miss it. That's awesome. How about yours? What's yours, Spell? So like you, I think it's hard to get better than Hamilton for a lot of reasons. Yeah. But if I had to choose, say, a classic, one, well, not really classic because it's not from the 60s, but if I had to choose a classic, it would be The Drowsy Chaperone, which I don't think has been on Broadway in like 15 years or maybe longer. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know because I don't think I've seen that. <laughs> yeah, it had a very short run. It was adorable. I loved it. It is a story about someone um, in his dotage in a rocking chair playing records of fake musicals that he heard throughout his life, um, living near Broadway and seeing Broadway shows and reminiscing about what each show did for him. And it just it's just it's just charming and heartwarming. And especially if you have a special place in your heart for octogenarians and I do, oh my gosh, it just melted my heart. <laughs> I'm gonna keep an eye out for that. I definitely need to see it. <laughs> so it also it also might help that I took my mother my mother was a New Yorker before she left the city in the 1960s. And um, I also took my mother to that show. And so I also just have these really great, great feelings of having seen it. So, you know, as often with shows, it's not just the show itself. It's everything around it. So, like, we walked back from the show. Like, it was just a really lovely time. Yeah, yeah. Well, another classic is The Music Man, which is going to be one of the first shows back when Broadway comes back with Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. It's about as good as it gets of a cast, so... Yeah. You'll see me at the Music Man as soon as I can get a ticket. I was going to say, I might be burning through some Delta miles to head up to New York for that. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, I want to make sure that if you want to find out more about Rob or Cause Strategy Partners, you know how to. So their URL is super easy, causestrategypartners.com. It is a .com because they're a B Corp. Mad respect for any organization in our space that it is a B Corp, and that's what they are. So you can visit CauseStrategyPartners.com to learn more about their work. You can also access their DEI toolkit. I was checking it out earlier today. Oh my gosh, it might actually be one of the best, most comprehensive sets of toolkits and tools and links that I have seen in a long, long time. Also, you should check out their governance-related blog. It is a great blog, timely articles and topics, whether you want to get a sense of what your board should be doing in a crisis or, hey, how to move a bad board member on, you should be visiting their blog. Hey, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Dolph. Always great to be with you. And we'll let's do it uh, before three years from now or four years from now, whatever that time gap was. <laughs> amen. Amen. 
Now, listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation with Rob Acton, make sure you go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. There you can get a link to his website, CauseStrategyPartners.com. And we will also link to episode number 60, which was the last episode that we had Rob on, as well as episode number 59, having productive and enjoyable board meetings with Emily Davis. That is our show for the week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And just a quick reminder, I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group, nor our guest today, even though he said he's an attorney, none of us are providing tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on guess what, for tax, legal, or accounting advice. If you find you or your organization in need of that type of advice, please seek out a credentialed, qualified professional who can help you. And if you're scratching your head saying, well, I don't know anyone and I'm not sure how to find somebody, reach out to me. If I know someone in your community, I'm happy to make that referral.